Let us pray. Almighty and most gracious Father, ever draw near this day. As we have heard Your Word, let us be changed by that Word. For where Your Word is, there Your Spirit is. And where Your Spirit is, there You are at work. Call forth life. Call forth our faith. And guide us evermore nearer to Yourself. For the sake of Your Son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. This day we've heard many, I believe, familiar passages to most of us. We all know John 3 so well. We know of Nicodemus coming to Jesus at night. We know of the call of Abraham, as he was called Abram at that time, to go on into the land of Canaan and to settle there. We know of Paul's great words so often from the book of Romans, emphasizing that recognition of faith the faith of Abraham being counted as righteousness. And I love how all these passages come together here in the midst of Lent. Like I said, jokingly, most people act like Lent is this sad and somber time for us. But it isn't. Look at these passages that we're hearing. Look at the work of what God is doing on our behalf, that He is doing for us and in us and through us. That God is at work, and that's what I love about this series of readings this day, is that it shifts our perspective. It continually reminds us to keep looking toward Christ. That yes, while Lent is this season of introspection, of reflection, of consideration of where we are in the faith, and a need to step back, to sacrifice, to fast, as a way of redirecting our eyes, of reawakening our eyes, of doing that which would help us to draw near to the Lord by removing those distractions in our lives. But we don't do it to earn anything. We do it in order that we might know God better. We do it that we might know that love of God for us. It doesn't earn God's love, for God's love is already poured out for us but it helps us to direct our eyes back toward the Father. That we would look and see the Father's love that is given through Jesus Christ Himself to us. It's kind of like an old pastor of mine once said if you, when he was at Disney World with his kids. And they were afraid of getting lost, and so he told them to hold on to his belt loops as they walked and meandered through the park. And as long as they were there hanging on to his belt loops, walking right behind Him by doing that. They were in a place of blessing. They were in a place of assurance. They were in a place where they would not get lost because they were clinging to their dad. And Lent acts like that for us right now. That is an opportunity for us to get rid of and set aside distractions so that we can hang on to God. So that we can draw back near to Him. And these passages remind us of the foundation that we have in doing that. That our foundation is in Christ alone. That our foundation is in the work of the Spirit alone. That our foundation is hearing the words of God given to us. Of leaving the darkness that we so often find ourselves in. 
and discovering that the light has become all around us. That it's not so much that we escape the darkness on our own, but that the light just simply comes to where we are. And it changes us and renews us because that is what light does. It reveals and opens us up. And that's where I want to start today with light and darkness, that great theme that travels all through the Gospel of St. John. The very beginning in chapter 1, John says, The light shines into darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. You may ask, well, what does this light and the darkness have to do with what we just heard from the Gospel of St. John there? Well, it struck me that it says that there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night. He comes to the light. He comes to Jesus by night, not understanding, not grasping that Jesus is the true light that has come into this world. He's beginning to see little glimpses of who Jesus is, that he is recognizing Jesus is more than just a man after all. What does he say to him? He says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. He recognizes that Jesus is from God. Even the Pharisees recognize that there is a sense here that Jesus is more than meets the eye. He is more than an ordinary man, that he is doing amazing things. He is accomplishing great things. He is an amazing teacher that is drawing the crowds, teaching in ways that no one had heard before. But yet the mass of Pharisees are too proud to admit what Nicodemus says, that we know there's an inkling in their hearts of recognizing that Jesus is this promised one, but they won't let it bubble up to the top as Nicodemus has done in his curiosity and his wanting to know and understand. But even Nicodemus couches these terms as he draws back. We know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. There's almost a shift in direction that he let it slip out that we know you come from God, but then he backtracks a little bit. It's like, because God must be with you. God is with you in order that you might do these things. It doesn't say, for the things that you do means that you must come from God, but that simply that God is with Jesus. Maybe I'm being a little nitpicky and hard on Nicodemus there, but I think it's a strange way that he kind of slips away momentarily, that he admits one thing, but then kind of tries to take it back. But then Jesus just looks at him and says, Truly, truly, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. What question did Nicodemus ask here? Jesus just suddenly jumps into a conversation with him and just goes full tilt. He just suddenly throws this truth out there at Nicodemus when Nicodemus has just simply tried to confess a little bit of something about who Jesus is. And I think it helps if we backtrack just a couple of verses to be reminded of what John is doing here as he has put this story together, as he is retelling this narrative. There at the end of chapter 2, in verse 24 John writes, But Jesus on His part did not entrust Himself to them, that is, the people at the Passover feast, because He knew all people, and needed no one to bear witness about man, for He Himself knew what was in man. Now, there was a man named Nicodemus. I love how John puts that together right there. I didn't notice it until this week, really. 
that no one needed to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees. That John brings this together, that there's a connecting point here. That Jesus knows what is in the heart of man. He knows what is inside of us. And then John immediately shifts to telling this story about a man named Nicodemus. That we already have settled in our minds that Jesus knows what is in man, and then here comes a man. He goes from that general sense down to here's a specific man that Jesus knows. That Jesus knows what is in him. And so instead of waiting for Nicodemus to ask a question, Jesus just gets to the point. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And here light is confronting the darkness. That nighttime of where Nicodemus has come to Jesus. Hiding in the night. Coming when no one can see. In a way, coming out of the darkness a little bit for Nicodemus. Though it is still night, for he is coming to the true light. And the true light shines upon him and gives him his truth that unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. And what does that mean, this born again? There's always going to be debate about the primary meaning of that Greek behind born again. The main thing though, whether it's translated as born again as it has been traditionally done or if we shift gears and say born from above. That is, a birth coming from outside, coming from above and coming down upon us. Both of these emphasize a great truth about us. It emphasizes that we are in need of something to change within us. That we have to be made new. We can't just continue forward in our old way, in our old being. Maybe born again is a good way of putting it. That we have to be renewed. We have to die. We have to recognize we are dead and be born once more. Or being born from above to be made new. That there's a spiritual impulse poured out upon us that renews us and changes us. But let us remember that this is not a mere metaphor here that Jesus says here. It is the very work of God in our lives, in these people, in Nicodemus himself. For one is entering into the grandeur of salvation. One must be changed by God Himself. God must act. And that is what that being born from above or born anew is, is God acting upon that person because one does not simply come up to the kingdom by their own might. One is changed by God to be fit for the kingdom before that person ever fully realizes what is needed. One must be changed, and that is why Jesus says, unless one is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And here is Nicodemus becomes confused and not understanding what exactly Jesus is trying to tell him. We see light piercing through the darkness. For Nicodemus doesn't look and walk away. He doesn't think Jesus is crazy for saying something so wild as being born again or born from above. He said, Nicodemus asked a question. Well, how can a man be born when he is old? Is there some way that he can enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Nicodemus asked a good question here. Not grasping what Jesus is speaking of. Not grasping the fullness and understanding that to be born from above is for God to commit a great act upon him, not for you to do something. Not for you to somehow go back into the womb of your mother and be born once more. 
He's not grasping what Jesus is trying to tell him. And so Jesus continues, one must be born. Unless unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. What does Jesus mean here when He says that one must be born of water and the Spirit? Unless one is born of water and the Spirit. And it's apparent He's explaining what it means to be born anew. That this is a birth that has to do with water and the Spirit in some mysterious way. And it makes sense that these would be brought together like this for throughout the Old Testament, water is always a part of the work of God. Some want to treat this being born of water as a merely figurative thing. That it's just a metaphor. It doesn't really mean anything to do with actual water. For how can Nicodemus even consider baptism in a moment like that? Christian baptism didn't exist. So how could Jesus talk about Christian baptism when it doesn't exist yet? So it's just a metaphor that doesn't really relate necessarily to the Spirit. But I think we miss all the allusions throughout the Old Testament about water and the Spirit and how they are brought together. Foremost being Ezekiel 36, where God literally says, I will sprinkle them with clean water and they will be made clean. I will take away their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. In that case, flesh being a positive thing, a new beating heart that lives and works as opposed to that dead, stony heart that can't do anything for you. That that water that cleanses and that spirit being poured out and that new heart being given are all bound up together. And so Jesus is connecting cleansing of water with the Spirit because cleansing with water is throughout the Old Testament. That one must be cleansed before they can enter into God's presence. And of course, there's a culmination of this practice of cleansing before entering into God's presence seen in the baptizing of Gentiles before they are circumcised. Because there were so many Gentiles coming to believe in the Jewish God as the Jews had been spread across the known world, that the Jews had to come up with a way to prepare them for even circumcision. And because water is so connected with spiritual cleansing, that though it's not commanded anywhere in the Old Testament that one must be washed first before they can be circumcised, the Jews seeing this connection and understanding that God works through the water by faith, that they baptize those Gentiles. And of course, that's what makes John the Baptist's work so wild is that this baptism that was for the Gentiles is now being applied to even the Jews. And here Jesus is bringing it to bear upon a Pharisee that you should be born of water and the Spirit. For without that you cannot enter into the kingdom of God. And he goes on to say, as this light continues to pierce through the darkness, don't marvel that I say you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. You hear the wind, but you don't know where it comes from, but you hear it. You always hear it. We often get caught up and think about the emphasis upon the mystery of the Spirit and His work and how He moves. That He comes and goes as He pleases. He does what He wants. But I think there's something that we miss here. 
What does he say to Nicodemus, this man who is not yet born of the Spirit? He says, The flesh is flesh and the Spirit is spirit. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound. This physical wind blows around and you have the ears to hear it. But you don't know where it's come from or where it's going. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. The one who is born of the Spirit can hear the Spirit's work. He can hear the work of the Spirit. He can understand. He hears the words of the Spirit acting upon Him and acting around Him. That just as the fleshly man can hear the wind, the spiritual man can hear the Spirit. Hearing the sound of the Spirit at work. And there's a connection thus with Jesus emphasizing understanding Scripture, hearing Scripture itself. For the Scripture is inspired by that very Spirit who causes us to understand it by that very Spirit that we can hear being active in these words towards us. And as one is born of water and the Spirit, one is given the Holy Spirit. One is given the ears to hear. One is given the ability to begin understanding and laying hold of the truth of what God is doing here. We are made new by God. And we can know the Spirit. And we can know where the Spirit is because He works through the Word of God. We know that He will always be here in the midst of us through the Word of God itself. For we know Him and can hear His movement. And that light piercing through the darkness, it begins to overcome that darkness as Jesus brings to bear upon Nicodemus the fullness of the reality of what God is doing. That this birth from above is accomplished by God Himself, by water and the Spirit. It's not something you do by yourself. It's not something you do to yourself. It is something that is done upon you. And the Spirit comes and renews you and gives you faith and gives you new life. Nicodemus continues to be confused as the light overcomes the darkness. How can these things be? How can you be talking about even Israel needing a new birth? Israel needing to be born from above? Israel who has the words of God where the Spirit is? How can you say that we need this new birth? And so Jesus tells him how the light will overcome the darkness. Beginning in verse 13, No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. Do we remember that story of the bronze serpent in the Old Testament? There in the book of Numbers when the Israelites were once more being disobedient and complaining and groaning and griping about how hard it was to have their food given to them every day by God. And so God sent serpents upon them. These serpents were venomous and they were poisoning them. And the people cried out for forgiveness. They cried out to Moses and said, Pray for us, intercede for us that these serpents would go away, that we would be healed. So what does God do? God tells Moses to make a bronze serpent and put it up on a pole. And whoever looks at that bronze serpent will be healed. They would be healed from the venomous bites in them. And they would be restored to God. Well, why the serpent? Why 
a bronze serpent up on a pole. In that moment, that serpent was their judgment. And yet to look at that judgment is to receive salvation. How strange God works in these moments. The people have to cast their eyes upon their very judgment and confront the reality of where they are, the situation they are in. That they are lost without God. That they are trapped in their sin. And thus they must look upon the judgment that comes because of their sin. Because that serpent represents that lostness and the judgment that comes out of that lostness. And so likewise, Jesus must be lifted up as that serpent was. So that all who look upon Him and see the judgment of sin upon the cross, that they see the death that is coming because of sin, they look upon that death of Jesus, that ultimate death, and they find healing. They are confronted with their sin. They are confronted with the results and the judgment against sin. And yet, looking and being confronted by that, and looking to see that Christ has accomplished a new work for us, means that we can be healed. Because Jesus has received the very death Himself. The Father deals with judgment by pouring judgment upon His Son. And the sentence of death that is ours and not His is placed upon Jesus. That serpent that is lifted up is the perfect typology and representative of what Jesus is going to accomplish. For it is seeing Jesus on the cross that we see the judgment of God against us. And through that, God brings healing. God brings restoration. God brings new life that whoever believes in that Son of Man who is lifted up may have eternal life. And here the light overcomes the darkness. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. Now this is a verse we have heard over and over and over and over in our lives. I'm sure most of us have even memorized it at one point or another. But I want us to think about this verse anew today. So often, when I've heard this read as a young kid, it was always, for God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that He gave His only begotten Son. The emphasis being put on so in this qualitative, quantitative kind of way, this great way. Look at how God loves. But there's another way to understand that so. To recognize that that so means in this way. It's not how we hear it in our ears because we don't use so like that in our language today. But that's how it was used previously. That's how it was used when they translated the King James and they put this Greek into English. For God so loved the world. This is how God loves the world is what that means. For in this way, God loves the world. He gave His begotten Son, His only begotten Son. He gave that one to the world. That whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. I think the emphasis is more on this is how God loves the world. This is how God will accomplish the overcoming of darkness. This is how God will bring about that new birth. This is how God will bring about new creation, being born from above. This is how God will make baptism work to bring salvation to us, to bring the Spirit to us. Is that He gives His only begotten Son. That whoever believes in Him should not perish. That those who look upon Him 
and are given faith and respond with faith won't perish. They won't be judged. They won't be held accountable for their sins. As we heard in Romans 4, blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven, whose transgressions are set aside. The sins are covered. The one that God will not count sin against. Blessed are those that that happens to and that is where it happens there in God giving His only begotten Son and Him giving Jesus. And he demonstrates what it is that God will accomplish on our behalf. And you shall not perish when you look upon the Son. But instead, you will have new life. You will have eternal life. You will have a life that will go on and on. But a life that is not just quantitatively different, but qualitatively different. For that life draws you away from the sin that led to judgment. It draws you away into a new path. Because that life is brought into us by that Spirit coming and remaking us. By that Spirit coming and giving us a new heart. By that Spirit descending through baptism to us. Through the hearing of the Word of God to us. For that is why baptism does anything. is because the Word of God is attached to baptism. Without the Word of God, it's just water. But with the Word of God and the blessing of God, it becomes a place of spiritual renewal. It becomes a place where God pours His Spirit upon us as that water is poured upon us. And thus God gives us His Spirit because He gave us His only begotten Son. Because God demonstrated His love through that. And so how can we not believe what God has accomplished on our behalf? How can we not receive the work of God for us? And that is where attention arises. This call to believe, I can tell you, go out and believe in Jesus. Go out and trust Him. I can command you to go do that. But for some, that seems to undercut the essence of the Gospel. The essence of the promises of God that we have to be told to believe. But it is attention. And it's a both and that sometimes we do need to be told, you need to believe, you need to trust. But other times we do just need to hear the promises of God poured upon us, showered upon us. That brings out a response of, how can I not help but believe? These very promises call forth belief. But in our distraction, sometimes we need to be reminded that yes, you do need to trust. You do need to receive. And when you begin stepping forward to receive that which has already been given to you, you suddenly discover that you were drawn up into that place of belief that it wasn't you who conjured it, but it was God who gave it. And so you can't help but believe because God has given you the faith to believe when you place yourself near to Him, when you have His work upon you, when you receive that work upon you. And so may we not be able to help ourselves this season of Lent. May we not be able to fully grasp what it is that God has done for us, but simply fall to Him and let His light cover us. May we not be able to help ourselves but to trust the work of God, knowing that we can't help ourselves when it comes to sin. And so let us simply die to that sin because Jesus has died to it for us. And now, let us and may we know that new birth continually throughout our days. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.